a big part of the the play's uh, struggle is connection, right? And and the the dichotomy of people being together but apart. And and boy, if that isn't a relevant theme right now, um, yeah, the, really. <laughs> <laughs> Again, podcast world, we are back. Welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And not only we are back, but you are back. Welcome back, Jacob. Yes, I put the emphasis on the we, intending to (laughs) launch into the spiel about coming back from a guest episode, but I realized I hadn't said the title of the podcast yet. So it broke up the the rhythm I had prepared for. But yeah. Yes, we are. We are back in the sense that I am back. Uh, you have been diligently working every week, every episode, and I got a week off. I got to just listen to last week's episode about once, where our special guest Maria Booth and you, Jackson, talked about that great musical um, and her awesome perspective as a singer-songwriter in Ireland. Very fun. We love, love, love having special guests on the show. Yeah, no, it was a great conversation. So grateful for Maria to come on the show and get to talk to us about the play. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, it's a great one. It's just last week, so you could uh, after this one, you could you could do a a, a two time listening of of no script for today and head back and check that one out. But we're moving into a new script today. That's right, and it is a, a, it's a it's a normal episode in the sense that we're just talking about a play, but it is also a special episode in the sense of it being the last episode of season five. That's right. Season five is coming to a close here on No Script. Boy, what a season it's been. I mean... What a time, what a ride. All of us uh, tuning in from our distance, socially distanced places and getting to talk about plays. So grateful for all of you who have gotten to join us in those conversations out there. We hope that it's been a bit of a distraction from the way the world is and are grateful for all of you tuning in. That's right. So as normal, we will be taking a short break after the end of season five uh, for us to rest and rejuvenate and get out of the rhythm of weekly podcast making. But we are looking forward to being back and that will happen sometime in early 2021. We'll keep you appraised of what date we're exactly releasing the first episode of season six, but we will be into season six of this thing. My goodness. Yeah, season six. We'll be moving into like the 120s of play that we've talked about. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's just been a privilege. It's good to be this far into it. And I think we'll look back on this season. It'll be interesting to look back. And hopefully this will be the only season uh, that is produced entirely in the world of socially distanced COVID landscape. Last season, about halfway through, the world shut down. And we're, we're hopeful, we've got our fingers crossed, that some, some way through season six, the world will return to something approximating life before COVID. COVID-19, hopefully sometime in the middle of season six. So ideally, this is the only season produced entirely in this landscape. Yeah, no, it's it's a unique place to be. So we're 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 grateful that we still got to do it, that we were prepared as one can be for this sort of thing and grateful for all of you turning in, turning in. 
tuning in. Turning in. <laughs> turning in. <laughs> well, now we're going to turn to our script for the day. We're going. Nice. We're actually uh, going to a playwright that we've done before on this on this podcast. Yeah. So this is sort of interesting because this is a player we've actually done before this season, uh, and we've yeah. never done that before except for the one season where we did Miller Month, where we did the four Arthur Miller plays right in a row for our theme month. That aside, we've never visited a playwright twice in one season, and we, we made the exception this season because the other script that Caria Alegria Hudes was involved in is that she wrote the book for In the Heights. Now, the book for In the Heights is amazing. I don't want to diminish her, uh, her the, what she gave to that play. It was really well done, but In the Heights is Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, invention really from the ground up. It was, I mean, she did a great job writing the book, but we felt like we could safely say that was sort of Lin-Manuel Miranda's thing, and now we're coming to a play that is entirely her thing from beginning to end in, in yes. terms of the script. I guess, that's not really how theater works. It's not really working from <laughs> beginning to end. That's sort of the opposite. But the script, at least, is hers from beginning to end. Right. She is the playwright of this script, and this script that we're talking about today is Water by the Spoonful by Kiara Alegria Hudes. Um, so, so yeah, we're going to be talking about that one today. Excited to get to return to Hudes' uh, uh, work and her writing style. So, yeah, I'm excited to get to jump into it. And before we jump into the rest of the episode, we'll talk about Patreon, we'll do the context and the synopsis, as you're all used to. This is maybe the right time for us to suggest that there there are probably people out there who would be better off skipping this episode. I uh, appreciate that it is the end of the season and that everybody wants to listen to the last episode of the season. We got lots of great episodes out. We're, if we're not at 120 yet, we're darn near close. So there, there's lots of other episodes for you to go listen to if you haven't already. But what's in this script? just may not be may not be comfortable for some people to listen to maybe triggering in some ways this is a play about drug addiction uh this is a play about ptsd and so for those reasons if if that's something that's going to be triggering to you you may want to leave off this one yeah, we just wanted to give you a brief heads up at the start of it. There's, As Jacob said, there's plenty of other episodes to listen to. Thank you all for tuning in to the last episode. Um, and uh, and we, we, we hope that you enjoy those. And for those of you who are sticking in, just know that, that, that the content is there. We'll be talking about narcotics addiction and recovery and PTSD. So... And now I uh, get the opportunity to thank our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you all so much for all of the uh, help that you give the show and the NoScript community. For those of you who are longtime listeners, uh, you know that this, this show is a labor of love for us. We love getting to do this show and have these conversations with each other and all of you out there on the various podcast platforms that you are on. Uh, this is not a, a free endeavor, alas. We have some... Uh, uh, associated costs with running the show and the patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast help us out enormously with that for as uh, the lowest tier over there is just one dollar and at that one dollar a month uh, amount uh, you're helping out the show enormously to uh, kind of defray some of the costs around podcast hosting and, and buying scripts and the time invested in the show so if you're looking for a way to help out the show and uh, jump on board uh, the no script community uh, towards the end of the season here head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and we will see you over there. Yeah, thanks to everybody who's already supported us. And now, back to the script. Back to the script. 
All right. Garia Alegria Hudes, she, as we've already discussed, wrote the book for In the Heights. Uh, she is an incredible playwright, lyricist, poet in her own right. But she does like to partner with Lin-Manuel Miranda, it appears, because I have learned in doing this part of the episode, the research for it, that she has actually written a script for another Lin-Manuel Miranda project, an animated movie called Vivo, which is coming out in 2021. And what? I love Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I love her as a playwright so i'm going to see the movie purely based on that i know nothing else about it but apparently that's a summer 2021 release project and she was brought on to that project back in 2016 water by the spoonful is it's an interesting play for us to do because it is the second play in a three-part trilogy a three-part series of plays the first play elliot a soldier's fugue incredible script in its own right it was a finalist for the pulitzer prize in 2007 i'm sure whatever the life of the podcast is that we'll get back around to it at some point because it's a great script we ended up with this one because this script won the pulitzer prize in 2012 so this won the pulitzer prize elliot a soldier's fugue was just nominated i don't really know what that means or how much of a difference there is between being a nominee and a, and a, and a winner in terms of right. quality of script. In fact, I suspect that it, that, that, that means zero. Uh, but that's why we decided <laughs> to go with one. You had to pick one. Uh, had to pick may one. come back to Elliot's. Uh, but Elliot, as a character, does appear in Water by the Spoonful. In fact, more than appears. He's one of the central characters. So the trilogy of plays is about him. The, the Elliot, a soldier's view, covers him dealing with his time in Iraq as a war veteran. Um, and Jackson, I'll tell you what this script is about. Water by the Spoonful debuted at Hartford Stage in October of 2011 and had its off-Broadway premiere at Second Stage in 2012. And as a kickoff to Jackson's synopsis discussion, I'll say that a lot of the critical reviews, and I just mean reviews by the critics, not negative reviews because it received roundly positive reviews, but a lot of the critical reviews in their sort of one-sentence summary of the play that's like the tagline, they tend to focus on like the Elliot part of the story. So it'll usually say something like a war veteran is returning to his home or has returned to his home in Philadelphia and is coping with the loss of his adoptive mother or something like that. And that's sort of their summary for the script. And that was very confusing and surprising to me, given what were some of the more impactful parts of the script to me, which was not would not have appeared in that one sentence summary at all. I'll let Jackson right. fill you in on what else the play is about. But that was just interesting interesting to me as I was looking at the reviews to see that they really honed in on Elliot's storyline in a play that has multiple storylines. Yeah, no, that's true. The, 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 the way that this play works is kind of a, a unfolding of a couple different storylines, at least two uh, kind of main storylines that sometimes weave in and out of each other and, and sometimes don't. Um, I am just going to jump in and give you just a short uh, synopsis of the script. Uh, we like to kind of set the stage a little bit and uh, and let you know what's going on So in case you haven't read the play yet. This play, as Jacob mentioned, is the second play in the Elliot trilogy of plays. Um, and uh, the some of the main characters are, are very similar. There is Elliot in this play. Elliot is a Iraq war vet, and uh, we meet him and his cousin Yasmin uh, right away at the top of the scene. They are part of a pretty large Puerto Rican family who lives in 
and Philadelphia and New York and kind of spread out over the East Coast. Um, and uh, they're talking uh, about... Um, that we meet them in the first scene. They're kind of hanging out with each other, and uh, Elliot has gotten Yasmin's help in finding someone to translate a bit of Arabic that he uh, says he's dreaming about, or that he that he remembers that he's that he's holding on to. Um, we learn in this scene that uh, someone who Elliot is referring to as his mom is uh, going through a sickness that he's having to help take care of her. She's going through cancer treatments. And uh, not not notably, I'm just going to help us all out in the uh, in the uh, synopsis here because it took me a little while to figure it out. Um, the, uh, the, the mom he's referring to is actually his aunt Ginny or Yinny. Um, uh, her full name is Eugenia. And uh, she uh, she is is his kind of surrogate mother. He, she is who he, he treats as his mother. His birth mom is uh, Odessa, and she's another character who I'll get to in a minute, but good to keep those two separate and to have that clarity in the synopsis up front. Um, we go through the scene. Uh, eventually, a, pr a professor comes in and helps him translate the phrase that he is hearing over and over in his head as, can I please have my passport back? So part of what he's going through is this memory of someone in Iraq that he enacted or interacted with. We then switch to the other main storyline of the play, which is around Odessa. And Odessa is, as I mentioned, Elliot's mom, Yasmin's aunt, and she runs a uh, narcotics addiction recovery group via an online chat room. On this online chat room, we meet a, a bunch of characters. We meet uh, we meet them primarily by their uh, handles on the chat room. So uh, we uh, one one is named Shoots and Ladders, and he's a, a guy who works in the IRS. He has kind of a desk job. He's a, a recovering addict. And uh, then we meet uh, Orangutan, who uh, has has recently gone back to Japan. She is uh, an adopted child. She was uh, uh, she was born in Japan and has returned to Japan to kind of figure out her roots back there. And and she's logging onto the chat room for the first time in a, in a while. We also uh, it's it's the three of them for a little while. Odessa, whose whose handle is Haiku Mom, um, and she kind of submits these haikus to start things off uh, uh, each each of the each of the days that she submits to there. Um, and they all interact. There's also the introduction of a fourth person who finds the chat room called Fountainhead. He is uh, uh, addicted to crack cocaine, and uh, he is is a new addition to the group. Those are the two big storylines, and occasionally they do intersect, and they intersect around the inciting incident of uh, Aunt Ginny, the uh, Elliot's chosen mom, dying. She she dies of cancer, and they have to uh, put together a funeral. So um, the two storylines, the two uh, lines are kind of progressing. The uh, narcotics addiction support group is helping uh, Fountainhead uh, work through his kind of early stages of trying to. Um, uh, be sober and whether or not to tell his family about or especially his wife about his his addiction and uh, it all kind of comes to a head in a moment when Elliot and Yasmin need money for flowers for the funeral and they go to Odessa to try to get money for the flowers in a diner where she's having a meeting with Fountainhead so the two storylines kind of intersect there she doesn't have any money to give them so she sends them to her apartment to take her computer her computer is the kind of one line that she has to this group. She runs a support group. She run, runs the website that the support group is on. So it's kind of, as she says, go to my apartment, take the computer, pawn it off, get whatever money you can. That's the stakes for what she's saying is she's kind of severing a, a connection to that support group. 
they uh, show up at the apartment. Uh, they uh, kind of, especially Elliot, really inappropriately sort of uh, uh, chats in the in the uh, in the support group text thread, and uh, eventually they they take the computer and take it to a pawn shop. Um, and I'll just jump in to mention that one of the things that is revealed when Elliot is pretending to be his birth mother, Odessa, handle haiku mom on the chat there where they enter her apartment, Elliot pretends to be her on the chat room. That that becomes a very big crucial plot point because the other people in the chat room revealed to Yaz, Elliot's cousin, that Elliot has struggled with a narcotics addiction of his own, um, yeah. a painkiller addiction, since his time in the army when his leg was shattered. Um, and that is not something that she knew previously. Um, the audience picks hints up as we go, but it's generally a revelation moment. Yeah, yeah. Through through the course of chatting with Orangutan, it becomes clear that Orangutan is one of the people on, on the chat thread. You say Orangutan? Um, That's funny. I say Orangutan. <laughs> Yeah, I've, yeah, I'm probably throwing in an extra G there. Um, well, that's, I, you know, people say it differently. That's one of the things I've learned as I grew up. People say words differently. <laughs> what a revelation. Uh, <laughs> but she reveals through the text thread that Odessa has mentioned to the support group before that Elliot is going through an addiction to painkillers. Um they take away the computer. They go through the funeral, and uh, that evening, uh, they uh, Odessa overdoses. Uh, she she uh, goes back and and overdoses again. Goes back to day one, or or to she's back at go. I think is one of the phrases that she that she uses. They find her. There's there's a really beautiful scene where there's a kind of walk into the light moment, and we're not really sure which way she's going to go, and she ends up uh, surviving that overdose, and. Uh, they get her into a hospital, but then they uh, have to go bury their Aunt Ginny in in uh, Puerto Rico. And so uh, both Elliot and Odessa leave her at the hospital, and uh, her emergency contact, uh, Odessa, puts down Fountainhead as her emergency contact. So he comes in and kind of caretakes her for a little while, gets her into an in in inpatient treatment center, and... Uh, and, then, and then the last scene of the play is both Elliot and Yasmin in... Um, in Puerto Rico, kind of uh, the pouring their aunt's uh, ashes over a, a waterfall in Puerto Rico and kind of talking about how their lives are changing. Uh, Yasmin is buying the house of her aunts and, and kind of moving into the role uh, that her aunt played when their abuela died, their, their grandmother died as the kind of family center. Yasmin is kind of setting herself into that role to kind of caretake this family. And Elliot is deciding to move out to Los Angeles and pursue uh, a, a lead that he has to be in film. Yeah, because he's, he's, he's like an actor, especially a commercial actor and a model. Um, he does that besides his job at the subway. Where right. he makes uh, all kinds of hoagies, I think is one of the jokes he makes earlier. In the <laughs> right, script. right. So what was so interesting to me about all those critics' reviews that have their kind of one-sentence encapsulation of the show not involve the chat room Narcotics Anonymous uh, plotline of the story at all is that, to me, that was one of the more striking things that kind of stuck in my brain and left that after image in the show. Now, to be fair, I totally understand summarizing the play that way. Uh, Elliot and Yaz have much more uh, stage time than the, the Narcotics Anonymous chat room thing, and yeah, yeah. this is part of a three-part series called the Elliot Trilogy. So, right. look, I get it, but it, it was just a little, I think, sad 
odd to me or a little puzzling because I was so enraptured by the way that Hudes brought in the online communication landscape into the world of the stage show. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the I, I agree that the kind of retinal image that I have at the end of the play is this this really unique staging, and it takes some imagination in the reading. But there's a, a couple of kind of promo trailers and videos out there if you really if you really want the visual. All these people are on stage and speaking their chat room lines. Um, so so speaking out emojis. Um, and the the, the old style emojis. Remember this play was uh, produced back in like 2011 or something. So it's still like you know smiley face. Um, uh. Uh, so, so, but but they're speaking out these lines. They're speaking out this conversation that they're having via the 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 chat in uh, on this support site, and it's this really kind of uh, surreal theatrical moment. Well, and it's something that theater, especially new plays as they come out, are going to have to continue to grapple with as so much more of human communication becomes digital. You know, in my lifetime, I've probably seen five to seen or read five to ten shows, maybe a little more than that, that have online communication as part of the plot, part of the staging. And that's, but you know, I now at my age, having seen the plays that I see or read every year, I've, you know, I've probably seen, probably getting upwards close to 500 plays, and I've read thousands of plays. I mean, so right, right. a very small percentage have online communication in them, and that's becoming so much of the human experience, especially now. There's so many plays that are coming out with video call stuff because of coronavirus. So it was it was fascinating to me to see Hootie's interpretation of all of the this kind of old style chat room model for communication and the way that these people have these barriers of anonymity in place. In fact, at one point, somebody almost says her name and immediately corrects herself to just provide her initials. And where meeting in real life is one of the major question mark. Is this going to happen in the plot? Are they going to do it? Are they not? It's one of the major decision moments of the play. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, you know my my synopsis. I I felt like I had to pick something, right? <laughs> but the yeah. but the play has like I think I I, I kind of uh, understand the struggle of the critics trying to find like a, a something to to write a synopsis about because you're right. The a big part of the the play's uh, struggle is connection, right? And and the the dichotomy of people being together but apart. And and boy, if that isn't a relevant theme right now, um, yeah, the, really. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 kind of connection you get from these chat rooms and and the way that they um, the way that the play chooses to show that by having people just speak their lines for the most, I believe it's even a stage direction that people should not be typing at a keyboard or into a phone if we were to do it in our modern context. People should not be typing in these lines. You should not. Uh, uh, do the realism of them at a computer typing these things. Rather, they're standing and speaking these lines as we imagine people when we're texting them, right? Like at least, at least I don't imagine people necessarily firing away with their thumbs when they're when they're responding to me. And yet, these and 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 uh, instead instead I'm thinking of them speaking to me. And that's what the the choice to move them away from the keyboard does. Is it provides that r kind of realistic moment of hearing someone though they are away from you. 
And a lot of theater is moving that direction with phone calls, right? Is that you, you don't have a, a, fo- a phone handset in hand, especially if it's a two-person conversation. You hear both ends of the line. And this yeah. this chat room model that she imagines is sort of the next stage of that. Well, what if you were texting? What if you were in a chat room? We still wouldn't want you to have to manipulate the physicality of a keyboard or a phone. We want to focus on the conversation. And, and so you eliminate those physical connections to the online world and imagine two people separate, but playing in this online format. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, as, as you look at the play, it, there's really three plots. There's the Elliot Yaz plot. There's the Fountainhead Haiku Mom plot, which is the plot about Elliot's birth mother, Odessa, and the, the guy who's newly admitted that he's addicted and, and they're meeting in person, her eventual overdose, and he takes her to the hospital. And then there's this plot that is between online characters until the very end, shoots and ladders and orangutan, and their decision of basically about whether or not to meet in person which they end up doing at the end of the play. Now, I think the reason why you would summarize the script about Elliot is that's probably 40% of the play is his plot. And then there's the two other plots that are each about 30%. So, like, it's the majority, but it, it, it does feel like it dwarfs a hugely major part of the play, which is the online world, which contains two of the three plots. Well, it's the online world also contains at least three different types, types of drama, Right. Like you have the drama of knowing that Odessa eventually you figure out that Odessa is um, Elliot's kind of absent mother. And so you have the the drama of figuring out how she's such a different person to this group of people, how present she is to this support group and how much she cares for these people and the the, the dissonance with her relationship to Elliot. And that, have- that that moment, I think, is not the moment, but that thread of this play is one of the more fascinating things that I think she's done in the script. The character of Odessa is the, really the only link between these two plot lines, which other than the fact that they both involve Odessa are totally separate. Right. Uh, Have virtually nothing to do with each other. It's a little bit at the end where she sort of brings them together to resolve some of the stories. But other than the fact that Odessa is involved in both worlds, these are two different plays. It's true. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, the, 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 the drama happening for Yasmin and Elliot is, is fundamentally different from the drama happening to Shoots and Ladders and Orangutan. Like the, the, those people never can, well, they do connect in that one scene. Well, right. But- <laughs> so she, she brings the plot, she, she brings the two worlds together in some touchstone moments where they impact each other. Yeah. But those are, those are moments where the stories touch more than they are the plots connecting and fusing together into one story. Right, they don't inf- they don't necessarily inform the drama of the other. Um, though, though the Odessa and Elliot storyline does inform the drama of the other very very poignantly. Um, in addition to the kind of family drama of Odessa, though, you have the the shoots and ladders and orangutan story of are they going to be able to uh, co- uh, you know meet ever? You have the drama of these people who are going through recovery 
and 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 how they express themselves and how they uh, have uh, daily struggles to maintain this state of of recovery. Um, and then the addition of Fountainhead into this group, who is who stands out distinctly. He's from a different social situation. He's a fairly wealthy guy. He comes on and kind of writes half a book as his first um, introduction to the group, and is just kind of mercilessly mocked for his first time yeah, when he comes into that's the group. Sort of a painful scene, really. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, no, yeah. There's no but around that. It it is a painful scene, especially uh, uh, shoots and ladders. Just kind of goes after him for for his his uh, lack of of admittance of his state um, because I think a big part of shoots and ladders uh, anger with Fountainhead is that he's not admitting he's an addict yet he's, he's he's saying that he has a problem it's primarily a mental problem he wants to figure out how to get it get it fixed um and and yet there's there there is there's a there, I mean there's movement there too there's uh the the uh, I, I found a quote from uh, Chiara Alegria Hudis who um, said, "Dissonance is a gateway to resolution," and that's a lot of what she's that she wanted to play with with in well, this play. That's in the script. That's Yaz is giving yeah. her lecture on jazz, and that's sort of a that's one of the parts of the scripts that I'm I, I'm a little bit puzzled by is that. Her, her, the character of Yaz is a college professor, a music professor. She gives this whole lecture on Coltrane and jazz at the beginning of the script, which doesn't, I mean, in terms of its plot appearance, doesn't appear really very much at all in the rest of the play, that there's this element of jazz, or the mm-hmm. fact that she's a professor, really doesn't come up very much throughout the rest of the script. What does, though, is that theme. The lecture she gives is on uh, prior, to, at least the way that Hoodies tells the story and through Yaz, is that prior to Coltrane, dissonance, in music was only the setup for later resolution. It created the tension, which then resolved. And with Coltrane, dissonance became a musical choice in and of itself. She phrases it in terms of the ugliness doesn't have to resolve into beauty. The notes can each be respected for what they are. And that thematically, I think, must have a lot to do with what goes on in this play because otherwise it's a little odd that you'd include that lecture in the script. Right. There's just otherwise not much about jazz. But the thematic the, the thematic statement that she's making I think is really crucial, especially crucial in a play where it, it we see two storylines that don't necessarily have a lot to do with each other come together into this one theatrical experience. You could almost say that the whole yeah. play itself, in the way it combines stories, is an example of dissonance. Absolutely. I think it, yeah, I, I, I think it is. It, you, you're right in that, you know, Yasmin, uh, as a teacher and as especially a music theory teacher um, uh, a, a, and teaching jazz in this class doesn't really come back around again other than that one moment. And yet I think it is for that series of lines in there around around setting up dissonance as a gateway to resolution. And, and certainly uh, she... Uh, Yasmin embodies that, right? Like she is, she is feeling fairly dissonant at the start of this play. A lot of her, uh, 
her support systems are kind of cast adrift. The kind of family center in in Aunt Ginny has died, and uh, she finds her way to resolution by moving into the center and and figuring out how to to kind of uh, help the family. So so in her character, it has an arc, but also in I, I, I agree that especially in the narcotics addiction recovery group. Um, it, it's, it's a huge part of their interactions, right? All, all of this kind of, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, Fountainhead says, thanks for hitting me over the head with a two by four. Um, all of this like sort of aggressive, uh, dialogue between them eventually resolves into some sort or not resolves, but well, yeah, resolves is like resolution, right? Well, it, I, it's almost <laughs> like, I think the chat room storyline is a great example of the, the dissonance, the way that she uses dissonance as sort of a structural element because really the whole idea of the chat room plot line is all of the divergent characters. I mean, she has picked four hugely different people, hugely different people, totally different personalities, totally different social situations, uh, but they're, they're all connected by this addiction. And in fact, at one point, one of them says, like, all we have in common is that we were, we're both addicted and trying not to be. That's not really the basis of a friendship. But it ends up actually, in fact, being the basis of their friendship, especially between Shoots and Ladders and Orangutan, who are closely aligned as friends and later meet in person at the end of the script, as we've said. So there's there's that level of the, the dissonance of the these four characters coming together and it's not like they create a harmony. I think that's sort of that I mean that's certainly what mm, the lecture that yeah. she gives at the beginning of the show is about that there's no need to create resolution. Dissonance is can be something in and of itself. And and that's what happens in this chat room storyline is these four people create this sort of dissonant reality that doesn't have to resolve into something clean cut and beautiful. Now, is it a little clean cut and beautiful at the end? Some, some right? I mean, kind of, but they not kind really. of meet in person, but <laughs> It's not like things are now great. Uh, Fountainhead, who, uh, as I, off the top of my head, I'm recalling that his real name is John, meets Odessa, Haiku Mom, in real life. But that's not like that storyline goes well. Like, he, yeah. he takes care of her and eventually does have to tell his wife about his addiction and stuff. But that's not a happy ending. She has to go into recovery. She's, you know, lost all the days of sobriety and has to start back at the beginning. So that that half of the story is really embedded in this idea of things that are different and don't necessarily sound good together, but still are aligned to create something. Or, or maybe perhaps uh, I like what you're saying around harmony. Maybe perhaps they don't harmonize with each other, yeah. and yet they bring it to a resolution. Like in listening to jazz, you don't necessarily every time you listen to jazz listen to it for the harmonies. You rather listen to it for the experience, for the the road you go on, and for the eventual resolution of these things sounding together. Um, and and just the sounding, the existing together produces this experience that is its own worth. It's not. It's not the 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 kind of <laughs> German noise, as uh, Yasmin says at one point <laughs> about German music, um, that that resolves nicely in harmony. Now, I think the more uh, obvious, more clear-cut example of that is the character of Odessa. I mean, so much of the experience of the play. I'm not sure this is necessarily what the story of the play is but the theatrical experience of the play experiencing all these characters is about this this these divergent worlds 
co-occurring in the character of Odessa. She is simultaneously in her physical human relationship, flesh and blood relationships with other characters, a, a fairly abrasive, um, kind of swears up a storm. Uh, um, uh, I'll just leave with, with those two. That's the kind of uh, personality that she has in her flesh and blood relationships and in her online relationships she like posts haikus she's very supportive and quick to chastise people for attacking each other she censors everybody's foul language she runs this online forum that is based on mutual support and connection sort of the creation of an online family even while she's she's fairly she butts heads with her flesh and blood family almost intentionally on on her part, it, it seems to me. And so that dissonance theme appears really clearly in her. And that's so much of the play, right? Two stories that don't have a lot to do with each other that dissonate, that coincide in this character. Yeah, yeah. To watch the way that she um, interacts with Elliot and with Yasmin in the one scene that they they have together, um, at least is at least the one scene that they're speaking to each other in 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 the same scene. Um, it's 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 it feels completely different. You just you're just kind of uh, uh, rocked back on your heels a little bit, and you begin to realize um, where she's had to put herself in relation to her family in order to take care of her family well. Um, at least at least from her perspective, she's done she's done the work a uh, long time ago of realizing that she was not a healthy person to raise Elliot, and so she gave Elliot to uh, Aunt Ginny to raise. And you see the ramifications of that, and the kind of what she has to keep up, the distance she has to keep up in order for that to work, which is so different from the constant connection that she both gives and needs to the online community that she has. Right. I mean, when Yaz and Elliot meet her at this diner uh her excuse for why she they haven't been able to get in touch with her is like she's run out of minutes on her cell phone which is 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 all fine and good but it's such a stark contrast to i love what you just said how connected she is to the online world in fact prior to the moment in the diner the other online characters say pretty much every scene kind of over and over that she's always watching haiku mom is always watching (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine like some some productions could have like the chime noise whenever someone post, posts a message for the first time. That's the kind of relationship she has. Her computer's always on. She hears the chime noise and she's always there, ready to listen or ready to <laughs> censor language or uh, uh, re- yeah, just ready to engage with with that online family. Um, and that's just not Elliot's experience of his mom. He has, he, he can't, uh, like even in this and, and really of, of how she behaves towards her family. She finds out that, uh, the aunt has died, uh, via an obituary in the paper. She doesn't, uh, get the phone calls or the texts that are sent to her. And she finds, she finds out via, via the paper on while she's chatting with, with the, uh, recovery group. So, so, so yeah, absolutely. The dissonance theme is, is, is thoroughly embedded in the character of Odessa. So given that so much of the play is about Elliot, we should probably 
probably rotate our gaze away from the online world, despite how enthralled I am by how she's portrayed <laughs> these online relationships and how they manifest themselves in the physical world. That part of the play is just so entrancing. I love it. But the, uh, so much of the play really is about Elliot and yeah. his cousin and what they do in the aftermath of the death of this really incredible woman in their lives. And they give a eulogy shortly, or you know, I don't know, halfway through the play, whatever, uh, where they talk more about her life and her contribution to the community. And we learned that she was this incredible community advocate, incredible person in the landscape of where they lived. And you watch Elliot and his cousin reel in response to her death. And what happens for the character of Elliot in that part of the story? I mean, this is the second of three parts in a trilogy about him. So there's some sort of development that he gains in this part of the story that we learn in context of the other plays. But it stands alone as a play of its own, right? And Pulitzer Prize winning play. And they, th- that part of the play is, is so entrancing, partially because Elliot is a little bit of a hard character to like. He's got kind of a, a good sense of humor. But he's a little bit abrasive too. Um, he's he's balanced out by Yaz really well. Um, and she's got uh, she's sort of a professorial human um, and, and very very empathetic towards him and other people. So they're they're a nice balanced pair. But he is I, I think he's the protagonist of that part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. And and he's going through, I mean, part of his journey, especially when you think about uh, from the perspective of the, of the play before, is he is journeying through dealing with PTSD as a result of his um, injury and his time in Iraq. So r- right away, this I mean, the first scene of the play is that theme. He's dealing with hearing this voice that is saying to him in Arabic, can I please, can you please give me back my passport? Um and that that recurs throughout. He is, in fact, seeing a, a ghost of a sort. At least the character uh, title is a ghost um, who just breaks into his conversations um, with this line over and over. There's this there's this really powerful scene uh, where he's taking an order at this at this uh, subway hoagie's place. Um, and and he's trying to take down the order and this this ghost is just kind of coming at him with this line over and over interrupting his conversation trying to take it over he he manages to get through the order okay and and has to eventually the order is derailed by getting a phone call that his aunt has died but he he's living with this uh this vision this um this ghost who is with him from his time before dealing with the post traumatic stress of that moment. And that's, that's part of, I think what he's, it's a huge part of what he's carrying with him into this. It's why he's so abrasive. It's why he's, he's, um, you know, why he needs Yaz in his life to kind of be the foil for some of these things is because he's still working through a lot of this. Yeah. He's got that, the psychological thing that he's working through this PTSD that is represented in this ghost character. But then also he's got these physical things that, that have recurred for him as a result of his time serving in Iraq. His, Iraq. his leg has some some number of wires. I'm going to say six because that's what's in my brain. Some, you know, some number of wires that had to be put into his leg to be able to walk. He really can't do a lot of walking long distances. At one point uh, off stage, he's boxing for exercise and to get 
over uh, losing losing Ginny uh, just so as an emotional outlet. And Yaz tells him he definitely needs to stop doing that or he's going to re-injure his leg. So we know that this injury is very present for him. Uh, he uh, When he's taking orders, I think he says, can you come pick up these sandwiches? My leg is killing me today. I'm not going to be able to come and uh, give them to you. So he's got this these dual remnants of his time in Iraq, what's going on in his head and what's going on in his leg. And at at least the thing that's going on in his head does come to a, it's not a resolution. Again, I'm not, this play is more about dissonance than it is resolution. So it's not like it comes to a resolution, but it does come to a head. It does come to a moment that is a significant step not necessarily forward, but just a step in this relationship with what is left over in his brain from Iraq, which is where he, he has this sort of physical encounter with the ghost. Right. And the the, the, the ghost is kind of attacking him and he, he returns the attack. He's wrestling with him. He's trying to figure it out. But the, the, the kind of tertiary thing that he holds as a result of these two things that he's struggling with is that he is... Uh, medicating with pills to try to deal with the pain of his leg and to deal with the presence of this ghost. So that's the other thing that's coming to head in that moment is he he pours out all the, as after the ghost has attacked him, he's kind of fought him off a little bit. Um, he he pours out all the pills into his hands and he and he's he's trying to figure out or at least the stage directions call for him to fig- figure out he's wanting to figure out how to throw them away. He's so that's the other thing he's wrestling in that in that really. Uh, like spiritual but physical fight is uh, is how to lo- uh, resolve or move past or move alongside of all three of those things. Right, and and the, the pills are the sort of the tie as you just described between the the remnants of Iraq in his head and the remnants of Iraq in his leg, and. That in that way, we see a more meta level thematic connection between the two sides of the story because the the chat room side of the story is also about these kinds of two worlds, what happens in the flesh and blood reality of the worlds and what happens in the head space or the chat space and the the narcotics addiction of those characters in the chat room is kind of the thing that ties those together as well so that does mesh these stories together. Again, not into something that really harmonizes, but into some sort of collaboration. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 true. And then he uh, the he he winds up moving. I think his his motion in the play, at least, is uh, having had that struggle and also having lost his his mooring. In his his kind of family unit, in his his mother, his mother figure certainly, and and his mother as well. By the end of the play, who is who he's he's kind of left in a hospital after having an overdose. Um, he's he's he, his unmooring has pushed him to make this brave choice early again in the first scene of the play. The doctor who comes in, uh, the professor, I'm sorry, who comes in and translates the uh, the Arabic for him. Uh, gives him a job offer to be a part of a movie. Um, and he, he spends the whole play kind of ignoring that job offer. And and through this unmooring, through this fight with himself, through this fight to, we, I guess we don't really know if he over overcame his, his uh, th- whether he threw out the pills or not. But through this fight, he decides to make the move out to LA and be a part of this project. So, so there is motion for him as a result of this unmooring and as a result of this fight. Well, and there's motion really for every character in the play and that's where 
her playwriting craft, her skill at what she does comes through in such great displays. This is a play with a lot of characters for kind of a, for a psycho yeah. American psychological drama. They tend to be smaller cast nowadays, but this is a play with a lot of characters. And each of those characters goes on a real journey and experiences some real motion in their internal storylines. We could walk through them one by one and articulate the ways in which the, each character has made a real step and a step that the audience is with them for in yeah. the course of this play. And the play's not that long. So I, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way all of these characters have moved through something in the course of not that long of a play. I agree. The, the the way that, as I mean, I especially think, you know, we are kind of in a family story. And so there are people that, that provide that family connection points around and we track the drama via that. But boy, the, the, the drama of Orangutan in, in Japan, as she is in recovery, 90 days sober, she is uh, teaching English now in, in Japan. She's gotten the address of her, where she thinks her birth parents might be. And she's trying to, to weigh whether she has the bandwidth and the right time to get on a train and go there. You have uh, her reaching out and asking for shoots and ladders to fly over to Japan so she can be with someone, she, so she can have a kind of physical friendship with someone and not just an online friendship. Um, and, and and all of that is paid off so well and, and moves through and all of it is kind of uh, given, given the weight it needs without um, overturning the ship of the big family storyline that is guiding us through the play. Yeah, and and I feel the same way about John, and he's got the uh, the username Fountainhead, and he's sort of the rich, wealthier guy, and his movement through the play for. Uh, it's it's so hard to say. I mean, there are minor characters in the show. The professor at the beginning doesn't. There's not really much plot yeah. for the professor. But even the ghost character, the ghost has a journey in this play, despite only having one line that he repeats over and over. That yeah. comes to some sort of movement there at the end. But the John story I just found so powerful and so impacting as he is forced to realize the, the extent to which his addiction is going to have to impact his life for him to move ahead in, in dealing with that his having to take care of Odessa, virtually a stranger to him, having to finally tell his wife that, that for a character that could have been just a side character ends up having a really powerful movement through the course of the play. Yeah, no, I agree. The, the, the way that, and, and it says so much about, you know, he's dropped into this, this, uh, this kind of different world as, as many of the other characters and, and his character uh, adds the weight of kind of telling the, the story of the, the social situation of these folks too. And, and in a really notable scene where uh, uh, Odessa is being kind of grilled by Elliot and Yasmin trying to give uh, money, trying to get money for the flowers, uh, trying to have her be a part of the family, I think is some of the subtext of that, the kind of communal giving of money for this funeral. Um, Fountain, Fountainhead is in the restaurant at the moment when this is happening happening and he at one point just like says here take fifty dollars here i have two hundred dollars and he just and and so some of his 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 journey is is uh moving from his positions his his uh social situation a pretty privileged one um into into the space of caring about especially odessa and about this this community of people online and sacrificing some of the things about himself that he was clinging to in order to move towards resolution 
Yeah, and to step into the space of these one-sentence critic summaries that end up focusing around Elliot, Elliot's journey is, it's one of the more subtle ones of all of the characters in the play, and that's, I would imagine, in part because it's part of a larger journey that the character goes on. It's, it can afford to be a little more subtle, and given that it's just in the context of this story. Uh, but I find it still quite moving because he is forced to come to grips with his relationship with his birth mother, he has that moment when they're in Puerto Rico where he is able to admit that he was attempting to drive her to a relapse and acknowledge his own fault in that and acknowledge that he could easily become her in the long term and takes that step to move out to L.A. and accept that movie job. And that is a more external, you know, he's definitely making a change in his life, moving from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, very clear and obvious movement in his story. But there is that subtle internal movement, too, of, first of all, being able to encounter the ghost rather than just ignoring him and being able to encounter his own conflicted feelings about his birth mother Odessa. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. The, the the journey that he goes on of acknowledging kind of acknowledging the pain of his relationship with his mom, but also his contribution to that pain. I mean, I mean that the he he tells he tells a really brutal story in a very public place about his mom, about how her addiction caused the death of his sister. Um, they were they were in they, he and his sister had the flu and and she she left them and his sister got dehydrated and died as a result of that. Um, he takes her computer. He knows that he he knows that this is her connection point to her support community and he goes in and intentionally via her telling him to but like cruelly chats on the on the computer and then takes it away. Um, so 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 that that move by him is is. To, to acknowledge his own fault is both really necessary given what we just saw him do um, and and also a moment of growth for him as a character into into kind of a self-realization of his own role in his in his system of 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 kind of hurting his family and hurting his relationship with them yeah and and earlier when we first started talking about Elliot I said that he was kind of a hard character to like and, and now that we've gotten through it all I think that's a good way to say why it's a little bit hard to like him is he he does so much stuff to hurt the people around him, especially Odessa. But he goes off on Yaz a number of times, who's really a very empathetic character in the play, really is trying to support him. But especially what he does to Odessa in agreeing to take her computer, even though Yaz says they're not going to get much money for it, why would we do this to her? Getting online and chatting as her, kind of intentionally, disastrously impacting her reputation. And then all of that but then there is it's not a resolution right it's still dissonant but it right. is a movement when later on we see him admit all of that admit the reality of, of why where he's at in life has turned him into that person and acknowledging the disastrous path that is in front of him if there's not some kind of change yeah, yeah. Admitting that he needs to get out of the system before he becomes 
what he doesn't like about his family and about himself. He, he knows that he has to pull himself out of Philadelphia and get out somewhere else for him. It's to get out West to, to LA and become a part and follow this job opportunity. But he knows that to, to kind of stay in this system, he will continue in this unhealthy pattern. And that's, that's, that's huge movement for, for certainly for a character, but definitely for people too. Like that, that's a big character movement for him uh, by the end of the play. Well, I think that is just about all the time we've got to talk about Water by the Spoonful. Really, it's not, I know, it's not an encouraging play. It's fairly sad, (laughs) but it is a great play. I mean, it it is artistically satisfying, very satisfying to experience these characters in this context and watch all of them move through pieces of their life journey. I mean, it's really an excellent, excellent piece of work. I'm... perfectly makes sense that it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2012. I mean, it is, it is a really high caliber piece of drama. Yeah. High caliber. So rich. I mean, the, 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 some of the most rich parts of the player are the fine points of the individual lines and how they all pay off to each other and the relationship of these characters. And we just can't have that sort of a conversation on this podcast. Like we'd be, we'd be here for hours just kind of like talking about little individual moments, um, which, which means there's plenty more to talk about. So if there's something else out there in this play that you love, that, uh, that you've, that you've seen or that you've read or that you've been a part of, or even acted in a scene in these these this play has a lot of great scenes for two three or four uh characters so i imagine uh many of you could have acted in the scenes before there's anything you want to talk about we love to keep talking about water by the spoonful with you you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites and we love to keep talking about this play with you if you want to recommend this podcast to your friends your family other people you know who like scripts you can send them to podbean apple Podcasts, google play or spotify you may want to forewarn them that there's not going to be new episodes for a little while because again this is the end of season five i mean it's like 99.7 percent the end of season five so this <laughs> is it everybody we were we're happy with five seasons so far that's so awesome and we're looking forward to when we start season six again we will let everybody know on all our social media channels and such what season six is going to look like when it's coming it shouldn't be too long sometime early 2021 you can expect the beginning of another season of no script yes thank you all for a great season until next season six you almost said next week i almost said next week (laughs) (laughs) it's not next week until next season (laughs) wow that's a big moment it is not next week it is next season at this point Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thank you all for joining us for five seasons of No Script. We'll see you soon. See ya. See ya.